Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! Hey, good morning, men. Welcome to Man Challenge. It's great to see you guys. Great to see you guys not stop talking. The respect is overwhelming up here. Hey, come on in and grab a seat. Excited to see you. We're continuing in this Judges series. But man, last week, how many of you were here last week to hear Matt Reagan Kick us all in the pills and punch us in the beak, so to speak. Yeah. Hey, man, I want to follow up because one of the things is that we're trying to develop here is the next step of faith. And it's just, it's a great reminder that none of us in this room have arrived. None of us ever will arrive, whatever that means. It's all about a pursuit, an intentional pursuit of pursuing Jesus in such a way that we start we strive to center our lives, everything about our lives around him, um, our relationships, our finances, our entertainment, everything, not in some legalistic so that he'll love us, so that you know we're worthy enough. It's not in any of those attempts. It's because his love language is, is obedience. And so that is what he calls us to, a life of obedience and the more we intentionally uh, pursue and the longer we pursue making Jesus, uh, pursue and making him Lord of our life, the more our lives are, are intended to be a m- more clear reflection of who Jesus is to those around us. And so last week, uh, one of my good friends, he, he called me and shared with me how, you know, when Matt Reagan talked about, man, don't just kind of try to manage uh, idols and sin, he said, man, stinking pull out the chainsaw and chop them down. And my buddy reached out and he said, you know what? And he had a total humble posture and authentic posture. He said, you know what? He said, man, I deleted Instagram at my man challenge table last week. And he said, and here's why. He says, I found myself that any time I've a lustful image has come into my view, it's, it's through Instagram. And he said, I found myself, it's like one second, I'll be looking at a picture of a bass, and the next moment I've clicked and there's a picture of a lady in a bikini holding a bass, and then the next click, there's just a lady in a bikini. And he said, I don't need it. Chopped it down, I cut off that chainsaw, and I got rid of that. Fellas, let me tell you something. That is what real men do. Um, depth comes from movement. And so maybe you're sitting here going, dang it, I should have done that too. Hey, guess what? Still applies. So just want to always celebrate depth comes from movement. And this is all about progress, not perfection. Fellas, there, whatever you walked in here, misconception, maybe this is your first week, um, there's no perfect dudes allowed. But when we link arms with other dudes on the same mission as us, man, we all need encouragement and accountability. Here's one thing I know is absolutely true of me, and I can share it from the stage because it's absolutely true of you as well. I stink at being my own accountability partner. If I was sitting at Man Challenge last week and and God prompted me to, you know what, I probably need to delete Instagram but didn't share it with anybody and was just like, yeah, I'll just... I'll do that. I guarantee you by the time I got to my office, I would have already negotiated my way and justified and convinced myself. Like, dude, you're 48. You don't need to do that. So link arms. There's nothing magical about what happens here simply by sitting in a seat. It's leaning in, and it's trusting, trusting God enough to be vulnerable at your table and just trust that God has your best interest and the guys at your table um, in, in, in view. So, that being said, this is Man Challenge Vegas style. What's said here stays here. 
um, if we get any uh, any reports that you took at home and shared it with your wife or anybody else, we will publicly flog you. So that's not a that's not a man challenge, by the way. That's just a promise. So anyway, uh, digress. Hey, and also we have somebody in our midst. Last Friday night at the Scarlet Hope Gala, um, our very own. Uh, homegrown Wes Sheffield, who's rocking the hat backwards up here. He received the volunteer, Scarlet Hope Volunteer of the Year Award. And um, if you're not familiar with Scarlet Hope, Scarlet Hope is, is being salt and light to a very, in, in a very dark places here in Louisville and beyond. It, it reaches out to women in the adult industry and loves on them. And it's Hearing the stories last last Friday night, only only the Holy Spirit can sustain what they're pursuing. And so Wes started leaning in um, a while back and found out that they had a need um, to teach these ladies. Of course, you know, trying to not just pull them out of the industry, trying to give them a landing place to go and to develop a skill. And they said, hey, Wes, we understand you got some cooking background and culinary ninja skills. Would you... Um, teach a class and on cooking and culinary and safety and food safety and he was like sure he did this class um, this last past fall is that right uh, developed it and and did it and this lady that was introducing and giving him the award she said something I wanted to write it down to make sure I got it right because I was like man praise God um, she said one of the things that I realized is that Wes and these ladies being around Wes um, is giving these women a new lens of how they view men. Fellas, that's what God calls us to pursue, not just with Scarlet Hope. As we're going, there should be something distinctly different in us, not because we've got puffed out chest with some extra strut, because like the world should see us. Um, something different in us, not distinctly superior, but distinctly different. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. And these ladies have a front row seat to seeing guys like Wes and, and Parker Warren all do that. And so, fellas, um, just want to encourage you um, and Wes. Way to go, buddy. One last thing before we switch gears. Um, man, two, two different um, people in my sphere of influence this past week um, suicide has has come come near and it's it's not surprising um with what's going on in the world but it's very disturbing every time i hear about that and was at the funeral home yesterday um of one of those um people and i was talking to a friend of mine who's good friends with uh, a gentleman that committed suicide leaving three boys ages 11 through college behind and a wife that just has no words and my friend was telling me, he said, man, I, I just talked to him like two, three weeks ago at church. And he said, I had no idea that he was struggling with that. Fellas, here's why I'm bringing this up. If you have any kind of thoughts of, man, it would be better for my family, for the world if I just wasn't here. Um, whether it's a thought as just simple as I don't want to be here or whatever. Would you have the courage to share that at your table, please? Um, and if you're a table leader, feel free to share it with me. You all are not bothering us with those kind of things. Mental health runs in my health, in my family history. Um, fortunately, that is not um, part of it, and I praise God for that. But I know that's that's a very rare deal. And so this is this is serious. Uh, as Christian counselor friend of mine shared last year, um, suicide doesn't fix anything it doesn't remove pain it just transfers it and so if if that speaks to you on any level would you please have the courage to speak up in fact table leaders maybe before you dive into questions today to bring that up okay um last week you heard me uh refer and bring these uh this group of five of us uh who just got back from santiago dominican um, go Ministries, and I said, hey, you're going to be hearing more in the next several weeks about that as we're planning um, two trips in 2022. We have two trips on the books. Uh, they are men's trips. Over time, we'll have different types of trips. We'll have couples trips. We'll have father-daughter, father-son, 
mother, daughter. My, we're going to have different types of trips. But twice a year, we're looking at within men's ministry sphere of, of having two men's focused trips. One is fe- coming up in 2022. Um, will be February 22nd. It's a Tuesday to Tuesday. And then again in 2022, October 18th to 25th. So those are the two dates we're charged, we're actually locked in on. And I'm going to ask Hunter Sin to come out. He's one of the guys that went with us. And uh, asked him if he'd just share briefly with you guys this morning uh, two things. One is how did this trip impact you personally? And then, uh, and then I'll ask him a second question. So uh, welcome, Hunter Sin. How did this trip impact you personally? Yep, thanks, Matt. How's it going, man? Morning. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of takeaways we certainly had as a group, but, you know, at a high level, I would say one thing it does is it, it certainly opens up your world blinders. I would encourage every man, you know, that makes this trip, um, it certainly gives you a different perspective when you come back home and realize how fortunate and how blessed we are here in the United States and how many blessings God has showered us upon, upon us with. But, you know, the one thing, and we talked about this a little bit backstage is, the one thing God's been working in my heart, man, is is joy. Um, I think it's the first time in my life I really got to witness what true joy looks like. Um, and I shared this first. Don't don't quote me on this one, but I think it's First Thessalonians five sixteen says, "Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus." Man, those people in the DR embody that verse and those values. To to put it into perspective really quickly, we went to a a town called La Mosca, and it's literally on a landfill. <clears throat> That's where the community is. There's houses on the landfill, and the husbands there, what their job is, is they will actually go to that landfill every day, look for things they can gather to recycle, try to get some money, and a lot of things they find is actually what they utilize to build their homes. And with all that being said, we walked into the community, and there was joy. Um, there was music playing, neighbors out talking, kids running around the street playing just wanted to high five us soccer football whatever it may be and it was just kind of a a punch of the gut to be honest everything you know I have here all we've been blessed with you know our our western culture tends to idolize material possessions yet they had absolutely nothing from a a materialistic standpoint yet they had joy um, because they had God and God was at the center of their lives and I was actually I was talking to Jay Dorch a couple days ago and I can't remember exactly what he said but he challenged me pretty good he said you know, everything you learned over there, how do you how do you take that back home? What does that change for you? And for me personally, you know, the challenge for my life is how do I show joy in all my, you know, interactions, all my relationships with my wife, with coworkers, with friends, whatever that may be. Um, the problems I personally have are, are, are really not problems at all in comparison to the grand scheme. So um, just a personal challenge um, to show joy every day of my life. Um, and that was, I think, a, a big takeaway for me. By the way, here's your name back, Jay Dorch. Um, but also, this is man challenge. <laughs> this is man challenge. Uh, what is your man challenge to all of us here in the room as to why, why not just consider, why we should say yes and figure out a way to say yes to one of our trips in 2022? Um, I think the first thing I would say is, there's absolutely no qualifications, right? You don't have to, to come with some resume. I'm a new believer myself. I was joined the church and baptized about two and a half years ago, and the only reason I say that is you know, you could be anywhere on the faith spectrum. I would actually encourage new believers, non-believers, obviously the mature believers as well. I think that's the great thing about Go Ministries. It's, it has the power to impact every man in this room, no matter where you are on that faith spectrum. You know, we went down there to serve, and at the end of the week, they serve us far more than what we could ever do for the people down there. And, you know, Go preaches on that all the time, calls it mutual transformation. But I truly believe it can impact every man in the room in that manner. Um, and the last thing I'd say challenge-wise, you know, I would myself include challenges all. You know, get out of your comfort zone and, and take a little bit of a risk. You know, find something to interrupt your daily routine, whatever that may be. It, you know, God may not be calling every single man in here to go to the DR, but for the ones that feel that tug of the heart, I truly believe, man, get out of your comfort zone, take a risk, make that leap of faith. I think you'd be astonished to see what, what God will do in you and through you when you make that decision. Awesome. Thanks. 100 everybody. All right.
Grant, you can come on out here. Um, if you have questions about Go, you're, again, you're going to hear more from the other guys on the team, but Hunter's available to talk. I'm available to talk from the rest of the team. This is Grant Roth. He's our men's resident through uh, May of 2022. And so he's been linked with us uh, for the past year and a half-ish. And he is our get, uh, teacher today. We're continuing on in this Judges series, uh, focusing on Gideon. And we are in Judges 6, verses 33 and following today. And so I'm going to pray and turn things over to Grant. Father, thank you for these men that chose to get up early, earlier than normal, um, so that we can not just start our day, but pursue you um, starting first thing in our day. And so, Father, we know that our efforts weren't, there's not a single guy in this room here in vain. And so I pray that you would use Grant to tee up your truth faithfully in a way that, um, that tees up every table leader um, to unpack whatever truths you, you want each of us individually and as a group of men to unpack. And so, Father, we, we ask that every one of us would leave here this morning talking about how awesome you are, not um, anything other than that. But we'd also be committed to being obedient to whatever you prompt us to be obedient with. And so we give you praise. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Grant Roth, everybody. Thanks, Ronnie. Uh, it was my uh, freshman year of Bible college, and uh, my classmates and I, uh, some of us, were doing like a service project of sorts. Uh, I think we were painting a tool shed or something like that. And there was this uh, pretty big tub of white paint just kind of sitting where we were doing some of the work. And one of the girls in my class uh, was trying to get that tub of paint open, but she was really struggling to get the lid off of the tub of paint. Uh, and I'm kind of watching her because I thought she was cute and stuff. But then she looks over at me and gestures over uh, at me, like asking me to come over to her. And then in that moment, maybe you can sympathize with me, but I was like, oh, crap, like, I, I'm supposed to be strong right now. Like, I'm supposed to appear tough. And so I, I walk over, and I, I gesture toward this tub of paint, and I say, you need my help with that? And I try to make myself appear a little more manly than I am. I'm crossing my arms, so my, my biceps pop out a little bit. Uh, and she says, yeah, I, I just can't get it open. It's, it's on there pretty tight. Could you, could you help me with this? And I, I say, well, I'll see what I can do. And so I reach down, and I'm sure I was praying in that moment that God would help me, give me the strength of Samson or something. And sure enough, the, the lid came right off. Uh, the Lord was with me that day. And uh, the girl apparently was impressed because we're married now. So uh, things, things turned out pretty good for old Grant Roth that day. Uh, but I love that, that story because, one, it's just a, a fun memory that I have with my wife, one of the earliest memories I have with her. But uh, it's also, I think there's something probably a little twisted that, that lives in me, that makes me really enjoy the moments where I get to offer my own strength or my own assistance or my own expertise, where I get to ask the question, you need my help with that? And I would venture to guess that as I look around this room at a, a group of broken, sinful men like myself, that that's a question we all like to ask. We, we all like those moments where we get to offer our strength, our assistance, our expertise, and ask the question, you need my help with that? And I think sometimes that that sort of mindset, that question bleeds over into our relationship with God. That there are things in our life that we would love to see God show up in and bring some sort of transformation or revival in. And we expect him to do so, but we also question whether or not he's strong enough to bring about transformation or revival without our help. And so we start asking God the question, hey, you need my help with that. It might be a marriage that needs restoration. It might be a sin struggle that needs eradication. It might be a dead soul that needs resurrection. We want so desperately to see God move in a powerful way in our lives. But sometimes I think we wonder, is he actually strong enough to move without our help? And so we start asking that question, hey, you need, you need, you need my help with that? And I think there are several different ways that that appears in our life. That sort of mindset appears in our life. One common way that I, I see a lot, it, uh, this is true for me too, I think with ministry or, or serving in the church. So maybe you feel called, you, you recognize that you're called to serve in the body of Christ, to invest in other people. Uh, 
And so you want to be faithful with that. And that's awesome. You want to be obedient with the calling to serve in the body of Christ. So you start looking for a place to plug in to, to serve other people. But as you do that, you start to question whether or not God is actually strong enough to use a person like you to make a real impact or to make a difference in anyone's life. Because as you're looking to get plugged in, you, you start realizing like, oh, I am not as biblically literate as Kyle Eidelman, or I, I, I feel like I'm too young to invest in older people, or I feel like I'm too old to invest in younger people. And you start to wonder whether or not God is strong enough to do anything meaningful through you. I think we've all been there. And so then what happens is we start to offer our strength up to God, saying like, hey, here's what I can bring to the table. You need my, you need my help with that? And so you feel like you don't know your Bible well enough, but now you're halfway through an application to, to Southern Seminary. You're going to be a Bible major in four years. And, and you, you've done that because you feel like you've got to have some sort of Bible college degree in order to do any real ministry, anything that really matters. Or maybe you, you feel like you're too young to invest in older people, so you grow out facial hair um, to make yourself appear older. I don't, I don't know why anyone would do that, but uh, maybe you feel too old to invest in younger people, and so you trade in your New Balance shoes for a pair of Jordans and some skinny jeans. You're, you're looking for a way to, to bring your own strength or your own appearance of strength to the table, saying, God, if you're going to do something meaningful through me, let me see what I can do to help you. And so I think that's one way that that mindset, you, you need my help with that, appears in our life. I think another really practical way that this shows up, and it might step on some toes just because it's pretty specific, uh, is in the way we approach dating and marriage, honestly. Uh, and this, again, has been true. I'm preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you guys this morning. Maybe this has been you or is you right now, but you're dating a girl, uh, and it's getting pretty serious. You guys have been dating for a while, and it's a good relationship, honestly. Uh, you're, you're excited about it. You're confident that this woman that you're dating is the type of woman that you could marry. She'd be a good, godly wife. She's someone that you could follow Jesus with the rest of your, with, for, someone that you could follow Jesus with for the rest of your life. And so you know that marrying her would be a good, godly decision. It would probably help you guys resist sexual temptation. There would be lots of benefits to it. You know it's something God's leading you toward in general, but you keep pushing it off into the distance, into the future. You keep pushing off dating and, or engagement and marriage because you feel like the only way that you can have a strong, long-lasting marriage is if you bring all of these other things to the table. You've got a mental checklist of things that need to happen before you feel good enough about proposing or, uh, or getting married. You have to have dated the girl for three years and you both have to have finished your degrees, and you both have to be settled down into your career field, or you both have to be making X amount of dollars, and you've got this idea of what you can bring to the table. You're saying, hey, God, I, I know that you're the one who provides the strength for us to have a long-lasting marriage. I know it's your spirit that gives us that strength, but are you sure, are you, sure you don't need my help with that? And so I think that question appears in that way. Uh, for me personally, I think the way maybe that mindset or that question appears most in my life, but at least the most recently in my life, uh, is in seeking forgiveness from God. Uh, this, this last week, like a couple days ago, my wife and I uh, got into a marital spat of sorts, one might say. And uh, looking back on it now, hindsight is twenty twenty. I recognize that, man, I was being arrogant. I was, I was being inconsiderate towards her. Um, and I was able to repair the relationship between me and my wife. She forgave me. Uh, after all, I am the man who popped the lid off the paint can. Uh, so why wouldn't, that's that arrogance again. So I've got a lot of growth to do. But uh, she forgave me, but the issue for me comes when I'm not feeling forgiveness from God. Like it's a lot harder for me to feel forgiven by God than it is to feel forgiven by people. Um, and so what I do, instead of trusting what God's word says, when God says, hey, if you confess your sins, I'm faithful, I'm just, I forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Instead of trusting that, that he's strong enough to provide forgiveness for my sin, I start trying to earn his forgiveness. I start trying to read my Bible more or pray more to prove to God that I'm worth forgiving. And I think that maybe God would be more inclined to save me from my sin if he had less sin to save me from. And so I start trying to earn his favor or his forgiveness. And in doing so, I'm essentially asking the question, hey, God, do you need my help with that? And I think that mindset, that question permeates our text today. 
There are two themes I think that the author starts to weave together in Judges chapter 6 and 7. He shows us, one, that God is strong. Over and over again, we see God is strong, but then we see that Gideon doesn't trust God's strength. Two themes, God is strong, and then Gideon doesn't trust in God's strength. And the author uh, kind of alternates those truths. He's showing us one and then the other. God is strong, then Gideon doesn't trust God's strength. Gideon thinks that he needs to do some strong thing for God. He feels like he has to bring some strong thing to the table. And so he's asking God that question, hey, God, I know what you've promised. Like, I I know you've said you're going to deliver the Israelites using me. You're going to deliver us from our oppressors, but do you need my help with that? And so I think Gideon starts asking that question in this text. And so I want to jump into our story today to see what God's response to that question is. And then if he doesn't need our help, what does he need from us? So uh, we're going to be in Judges chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 33 if you want to flip there. Uh, And just a little bit of context. You guys remember last week Matt came here and taught, and I'm really grateful for Matt teaching last week. Uh, he, he taught us about how Gideon tore down the altar to Baal that was in his, his uh, father's backyard, basically, and tore down the Asherah pole. So he tears down all these idols. People are really mad at Gideon. But as we pick up this narrative today, in our very first scene, we see that there's not any time to be upset with Gideon because there's an imminent, imminent threat at hand. The oppressors are moving in. And so everyone's focus shifts from Gideon to the enemy. And so we see the enemy's moving in, but then God shows his strength. We see that God does this thing. He calls this small group of people to go fight against uh, the enemy moving in. So in chapter 6, verse 33 and 34, this is what the author says. Now all the Midianites, Amalekites, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Uh, So a note on that, verse 33, that it's talking about those enemy forces moving in. So the Midianites and Malachites and all the other Eastern people are joining together. So the enemy is growing and they're moving in closer. And then the next verse says, the spirit of the Lord came on Gideon and he blew a trumpet, summoning the Ebiezrites to follow him. And so we see God showing off his strength in this very first scene. The enemy is moving in, but then God sends his spirit to work uh, through Gideon, to use Gideon as a vessel to rally this small group of people together, the Abiezrites. And that is the clan, if you remember from earlier in chapter 6 when Mason was teaching, that's the clan that Gideon is from, the Abiezrites. And it's a small clan. You remember Gideon says, well, how can you save how can you save Israel using me? I'm from the smallest clan in one of the smallest tribes. And so you notice here that God's response to the enemy moving in isn't to uh, rally some gigantic army and, and equip everyone with a bunch of weapons or anything like that, but he rallies a small group of Abiezrites together. And I think Gideon is probably looking around thinking like, ooh, I'm a, I'm a little bit nervous about this. This isn't enough people to go fight against the Midianites. And so we see in the very next verse, Gideon start to ask that question. Hey, God, like I know, I know what you said. I know you, you want to deliver us from the hand of Midian with this group of people, but do you need my help with that? And so we see Gideon looking for more assurance of victory, even in the very next verse and in the next chunk of our passage here. So verse 35 It says, he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, calling them to arms, and also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. And so we see in that verse, Gideon rallies more than just the small clan of Abiezrites that he comes from. And the text doesn't, at this point, indicate that Gideon's doing anything necessarily sinful, but as we keep reading through the story, we start to recognize that Gideon seems to be kind of stepping outside of God's will in this situation where God has, has given him this group of people, this small group of people to fight the enemy, but then Gideon gets uncomfortable and says, hey God, you need my help with that. Let me go rally all these other tribes together so that we can have a large army to go fight our oppressors. And I don't blame him, you know? Do you, you would do the same thing. I would do the same thing. If, if I had to go fight a huge battle, I'd want a huge army. And so that's what Gideon does, but we start to see this lack of trust in God's strength. So in verses 36 to 40, Gideon continues to look for more assurance of God's victory, this time not in people like he did in verse 35, but then he uh, turns back towards God, asking God for more assurance of 
uh, victory. And so he kind of does this weird fleece ritual where he essentially is saying, hey, God, if you're going to save Israel the way that you said you're going to save, if you're going to be faithful, will you perform this sign for me? And God does it two times. So God provides extra assurance for Gideon two different times to show and prove, hey, I'm going to be faithful to you. I am strong, and I'm going to show up in this situation and bring salvation uh, to, to Israel. And so that's what God does in verses 36 to 40. And then uh, in the next scene, God puts his power on display once more. God shows off his strength. He whittles down the army so that that his power is on display. So if in these first few verses, Gideon is questioning God, kind of having that mindset of, hey, do you need my help with that? I think the next uh, little chunk of our passage, God is essentially saying, no, no, I've got it. I've got it under control. In verses uh, 1 to 8 of chapter 7, this is what we read in uh, chapter 7. It says, early in the morning, Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moray. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into your hands or Israel would boast against me, saying my own strength has saved me. So go announce to the army. Anyone who trembles with fear may turn and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. So if you're Gideon at this point, you're starting to get nervous because you know the enemy's over there. They're moving in closer. I rallied this large army together, and now God sent 22,000 of them away. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water, and there the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. And 300 of the men drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let everyone else go home. And so Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. And then right here at the end, the author reminds us that there is an imminent threat at hand. He says, now the camp of Midian lay below in the valley. And so I think in these verses, God is essentially saying, hey, I hear what you're saying, Gideon. I hear you offering up your own strength, but I don't need your strength. I've got this one under control. And so he whittles down the army to prove, like he wants it to be so clear that God is the one bringing about the victory that no one else can take credit. So he starts whittling down the army that Gideon has just built up in, in the previous verses. And I think that's really interesting. And there are some people who will read this passage and say, well, God was narrowing down the army to the best warriors, the best 300 people he could find based on like the way that they chose to drink the water. They say like, well, they, they bent over in a way and they drink the water so that they were extra alert and God chose the most alert people uh, and the best warriors to be the 300 who remained. He was really just refining the army. And I get under, trying to understand God's logic behind some of these things, but that doesn't really match up with God's MO in this text because the whole reason God starts narrowing down the army is so that no one can brag or boast saying that they won by their own strength. God wants it to be so clear that he was the one bringing about the victory. So why would he narrow it down to 300 people who could still brag about how strong they were and how great of warriors they were? I'm guessing that this process of whittling the army down uh, was a lot more arbitrary and random than what we might think. Uh, God just needed 300 random dudes because God's that powerful. I think if, uh, if it was in modern day, it'd be something like, hey, Gideon, like, I'm going to narrow your army down. Have everyone order pizza tonight. And everyone who orders pepperoni pizza, the most popular topping, send those people home. And that's going to be a lot of people. So send that group of people home. But everyone who orders Canadian bacon, a much smaller group of people, keep those people. And we can work with that. And then whoever orders pineapple on their pizza, have them executed. I think God would say something like that. <laughs> but... Essentially, what God is doing in this, this text and in that chunk of our text is he's narrowing down the army, proving or at least uh, suggesting, I don't need your strength. But I think Gideon, again, is a little bit nervous and afraid. And what's cool about 
the way God interacts with Gideon is that God doesn't really scold Gideon or reprimand him for being afraid or, or nervous or timid. God's understanding of it, uh, and we see in uh, kind of the next portion of our passage that God assures Gideon once more and offers him more encouragement. So essentially God says, hey Gideon, I know you're still afraid. I know I've whittled down your army and you're nervous about trying to face the Midianites with, with so few people. So I know you're afraid. Go down in secret to the camp of Midian and I will give someone a dream down there so that you will overhear a conversation that they're happen, having and then you're going to be encouraged by it. And that's essentially what happens. So Gideon and one of his like servants go down to the Midianite camp and then they overhear a conversation that one of the Midianites is having. And the Midianite is essentially saying like, I had this crazy dream and I'm pretty sure Gideon and the God of Israel are gonna completely destroy us. And so Gideon hears that and he's like really encouraged. He's like, oh, okay, so the Midianites are afraid of us. They're afraid of me. I feel good about this now. God's gonna bring about a victory. So Gideon has some confidence now uh, and God gives him that extra assurance. And so then it shifts because Gideon's ready to step into battle and God's ready to deliver the Israelites. So in the next famous scene, God shows and proves that he doesn't need anyone else's strength to accomplish his purpose. But I think in this text, we do discover uh, the one thing that Gideon does right. He does a lot of things wrong, continually asking the question, hey, you need my help with that? But in the next little chunk of our passage, we see one of the things that Gideon does uh, right. So in this fifth scene, it's a climactic scene, uh, God saves the Israelites in this surprising way. Starting in verse 16, uh, the author says, dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. So notice the weaponry that God gives them, torches and empty jars. <clears throat> and he says, watch me, he told them, Gideon said, follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from all around the camp, blow yours and shout, for the Lord and for Gideon. There might be something to this. There might not be. I just think it's interesting that as Gideon's going to fight this battle for God and God has promised his, his salvation, that he's going to show up and do something amazing, Gideon like tacks his name on with God. And so I wonder if this is the author giving us a little hint that things are starting to go wrong in Gideon's story. Even in the midst of God providing and bringing about salvation and doing these amazing things, Gideon is like doing some things a little bit wrong. And what we're going to see as we move forward through this series that this is about as good as it gets for Gideon. Like this is the peak of his story and then things start to get worse from here. We start to see the consequence of uh, continually relying on our own strength and asking God the question, hey, you need my help with that. So Gideon says, for the Lord and for Gideon. And Gideon and the hundred men went with him, they reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they had changed the guard. They blew their trumpets and broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets that they were to blow. And they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. And while each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. It's interesting in verse 21 there to notice the contrast between the Israelites and then the Midianites there. The Israelites are standing still and then the Midianites are going crazy. They're running all over the camp. So it's just interesting that God's using the people who are just standing still and he's causing the enemy to, to go crazy. There's lots of chaos. Uh, verse 22, and it says, when the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords and the army fled to Beth Shittah. Gotta make sure you pronounce that one right. Towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahala near Tibet. So uh, in this passage, we see that Gideon finally trusts God's strength for just a moment. Gideon all along has been trying to do this strong thing. Like he thinks in order for God to show up in some powerful way, in order for God to accomplish his purpose, Gideon has to bring some strong thing to the table. But I think it's almost like in this part of our passage, Gideon for just a moment slows down and starts to ask a really vital question. He starts to ask, what, what if God doesn't need my strength? Like, what if when it comes to God doing the work that he wants to do, he doesn't need my help? What if when it comes to God doing the work that he wants to do, for me, the strong thing is the wrong thing? What if I don't need to bring the strong thing to the table? What if, what if God is the one who is strong enough to bring about victory and deliverance and salvation, and I don't need to do anything about it? 
What if there's something else that God wants us to do? What if there's something else God wants from us instead of our strength? And I think finally Gideon gets it for just a moment. He, he grasps it for a moment. And I think in this, this part of our passage, we really, really start to see this theme of God's strength contrasted with our human weakness and the way that God in his strength works through our weakness. So even like take a step back and think about Gideon's story up to this point. Think about all the ways the author has, has let us know or hinted that Gideon and all the humans in this story are so, so weak, but God is still strong and brings about victory. When we meet Gideon, he's, he's afraid. He's, he's threshing wheat in a wine press. He's afraid of the oppressors. And then he says, hey, I'm from the smallest clan and one of the smallest tribes. And then Gideon needs extra assurance before he obeys God's call. And then God whittles the army down. There's only 300 people. And then Gideon needs extra encouragement again through, through the dream of the Midianite. And then when they go into battle, they have no real weapons. And then they don't actually attack anyone. They just sort of stand there. Everything about the human beings, everything about Gideon in his story is weak. Like all the humans bring to the table is weakness. But what's incredible about this passage is that it shows us that a weak group of people who submit to God are far more powerful than a strong group of people who don't submit to God. And I love that about this text, that God wins in our weakness, that he doesn't need our strength. And I think that kind of leads us toward that first thing, really the only thing that I think Gideon does right in this passage. And it's about the only thing that we can do right in our lives when it comes to God bringing about victory or transformation or salvation. He submits. Gideon submits to God. And I think we can assume that Gideon submits to God because when we look at this military strategy, it's obvious that no one would have come up with that strategy except for God. Like no human, especially Gideon, who is like trying to build up this massive army, would be like, yeah, let's go into battle with trumpets and uh, pottery to try and defeat our oppressors. You know, can you imagine Gideon trying to pitch that to a group of 300 soldiers who are probably, I would guess, as afraid as Gideon, as they're like, okay, there's 300 of us and we're about to go fight the Midianites. And Gideon's like, all right, guys, gather around. Uh, tonight's the night, like, we're gonna, we're gonna destroy Midian. Like, we're going to get revenge for all of the oppression. We're gonna get revenge for everything Midian has done to us for the last seven years. We're going to annihilate them with trumpets and pottery. And then, like, one of the soldiers like, hey, hey, what'd you say, Gideon? And he said, I said, we're gonna destroy Midian. We're gonna annihilate him. And they're like, yeah, you, I heard that part. You said something. Did you say trumpets and pottery? You know, like, you just look at this, this military strategy no one would have come up with that except for God, but God uses this, this strange strategy to bring about victory and prove that when people submit to him, he can do so, so much. That God is strong even when we are weak, and his strength is the most obvious in our weakness. And I think this is a part of the text where we're able to really investigate some of God's logic, and I think it's really cool to see maybe at least a little portion of what God might have been thinking as he set up this military strategy. So in ancient battles, when they would fight at nighttime, people would carry torches and some of the soldiers would stand at the, the back of the, the battle lines, kind of at the back of the battleground, marking off the perimeter of the battleground, and it would help the soldiers know, like, we're not supposed to retreat past these people holding the torches. But then they would also hand out trumpets to just like a couple, like a handful of people who would blow a trumpet to signify like, hey, now it's time to charge and attack our our enemy. So usually like two or three trumpets would symbolize or signify an entire army coming to attack. But in this case, God is like, hey, I want 300 guys to have trumpets. And so everyone blows their trumpet. And so if I am a Midianite in this camp in the middle of the night, I, like I'm waking up and hearing 300 trumpet, trumpets, I'm probably assuming that there is like this enormous army coming to attack. And God sees that. God knows that sort of thing. That might have been God's reasoning. It might not have been, but God sees things that Gideon doesn't and comes up with this strategy and wins this, this battle in this amazing way. He uses a bizarre strategy to prove his strength and that he can do a whole lot when weak people choose to submit to him. And I think so often, so often I assume that God needs my strength. So often we assume that we need to, to do the strong thing. We ask the question, hey God, you need my help with that? 
But I think this, this text shows us that God doesn't need our strength. He just wants our submission. God doesn't need our strength. He just wants our submission. And so you feel called to serve in the church. You recognize that you are called to, to invest in other people, but you kind of say to God, hey, I, I understand you're calling me to that, but not, not yet. I, I don't have enough education, or I'm not old enough, or I'm, I'm too old. And I think, based on this text, the way that God would respond is essentially like, yeah, I, I know. That's why I want to use you right now. Like, I know you don't have what it takes to make an impact on your own, so that's why I want to use you, so I can prove that I'm the one making the impact. He doesn't need our strength. He just wants our submission. So you know that it would be a godly decision to marry the, the girl that you're dating right now, but you keep pushing it off, thinking like, hey, the only way we're ever going to have a strong enough marriage that's, that's long-lasting is if I can bring all these other things to the table, if we can be financially secure, or if we have dated for this amount of time. And I think, based on this text, the way God would respond in that situation is like, you know, you know your strength. None of those strong things you're bringing to the table are what would give you the strength to have a long-lasting marriage. Like, I'm the one who gives you that strength. He doesn't need our strength. He just wants our submission. When I feel like I have to earn God's forgiveness, uh, and I feel like I have to get back on his, his good side after I've sinned, or I feel like God can only save me from my sin if he doesn't have much to save me from, I think this text reminds me of the good news of the gospel. That I'm not saved because I've got it all together. I'm not saved uh, because I'm strong, but because God is strong. And even in God's weakest moment, even in his weakest moment, he was still so strong. As his weak, broken body, covered in blood, was hanging on a cross, God was still strong enough to take on the punishment for my sin and your sin and the sin of all mankind. And he was still strong enough to tear the temple curtain in two, making it possible for a sinful person like me and a sinful person like you to live forever in relationship with a sacred God. Even in his weakest moment, God was so, so strong. God doesn't need our strength. He just wants our submission. And so when I'm looking for forgiveness, I don't need to do some strong thing. I don't need to bring anything else to the table. All I can do is submit to Jesus as my Lord and accept what he's already done for me. He doesn't need our strength. He just wants our submission. And I think Gideon was learning that truth too. He was learning it right alongside us. But I think just like us, Gideon is human, and so he forgets so quickly, and he starts to ask that same question over and over again. Hey, God, you need my help with that. We see uh, in this final scene of our text that Gideon once again resorts to the strength of people. He starts trying to be strong on his own rather than relying on God's strength. In verses 23 and 25 of chapter 7, uh, we see the author write this. Israelites from Naphtali, Asher, and Manasseh were called out, and they pursued the Midianites. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters of the Jordan ahead of them as far as Beth Barah. So, they, so the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters of the Jordan as far as Beth Barah. They also captured two of the Midianite leaders, Oreb and Zeb, and they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued the Midianites and brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon, who was by the Jordan. And so Gideon has just watched God bring about this decisive victory, like this amazing victory. God has shown up in an incredible way, and Gideon witnessed it firsthand. But then he ceases to trust God's strength again. Like God brought about the victory with such a small army, but then Gideon goes out and rallies together some of the same tribes that he had rallied together earlier. And then God said, no, 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 you've got too many people. Let's send these people home. So God wins the battle with the small army, and then Gideon says, no, like I, I want to bring something strong to the table again. And so it's like Gideon is asking that question. You need my help with that. And I hate the way that this text ends. It ends in a pretty unsettling way, which means that this message ends in an unsettling way. I wish Gideon's story had a different ending, but it, it really doesn't. Like things just get worse from here. 
but our story can have a different ending. I think this text presents us with a choice. It feels like the author is essentially saying, hey, you can choose which Gideon you want to be like. You can choose to be the Gideon who, who in his weakness chooses to submit to God and then God works through him and does something incredible. Choosing to submit to God even when it doesn't make sense and then seeing God do something awesome. You can be that Gideon or we can choose to be the Gideon who knows the truth, who has seen it firsthand, that God doesn't need our strength. He just wants our submission. We can choose to be the Gideon that would hear that truth and then walk out of this room and for the rest of his life continue to ask that same question that our pride loves to ask. Hey, God, you need my help with that? Let's pray. Father, uh, I praise you for your grace. I praise you for your mercy. Uh, I praise you for your strength. You are so powerful, and you have been working in the lives of your people for all of human history. And I'm grateful that you care about us, that you interact with us, Lord. As we read this story, God, I pray that you help me not to rag too much on Gideon, and I pray that we would recognize that we're Gideon a lot of times. Father, I pray that you would continue to show us that you don't need our strength, you just, you just want our submission because you love us and you know what's best for us. So, so God, I pray that we would be enamored by you, that we would uh, be captivated by your power, your majesty, your ability to work through our weakness, and that we would be drawn to you, Lord, willing to submit to you because you love us and because you are so strong and worthy of our submission. But then I also pray that we would stop asking the question, you need my help with that. And God, I pray that you'd forgive me for the moments where I do that, where I try to bring something strong to the table where you just ask me to be weak and to submit to you. So God, I pray that you would even use me as a weak, inadequate vessel this morning. I pray that the words that I spoke, even though they're not perfect, that you would work through your word, which is perfect and which is strong, to make a difference in our hearts. I pray that you'd be glorified in the discussion at our tables. Um, and that we would be drawn closer to you, the strong God who loves weak people like us. We love you, Lord, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media. 